This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers are working from sun up and sun down, so... Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers at one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. They're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello. Michelle Stanley with you on Countrywide. Have you noticed a change in the price of meat at the supermarket or butcher lately? I guess everything's going up, isn't it? But at the sale yards where the livestock are bought and sold, prices are actually going down. So what gives? Any chance they get to bump the price up, they do. And then when the price of lamb drops, they just find some, some reason to stay where they are. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just... Farmers are price takers, not price makers. When we, we should be makers. We're the first link in the chain. We're the first step. And I'll take you to Pardue Station. It might be a familiar name. Pardue is a cattle station in the northwest of WA, right up on the East Pilbara Coast. And two months ago, it was the exact point tropical cyclone Ilsa across the Australian mainland. As if you put your hand on a shed and you were strong enough to crush it and then push it on the ground, just smashed. And when we got a helicopter in, it was just mind-boggling. You know, you couldn't... You're kind of speechless, you know. The pivots were just a mess. You're kind of speechless, you know. That and plenty more coming up on Countrywide. In some major grain news this week, global agribusinesses Bungie and Viterra have agreed to a merger. The deal will create a $34 billion US dollar global grain giant. Here's Clint Jasper with the details. These are two big global grain players that mainly have a physical presence in WA and South Australia, Viterra being the dominant grain handler in South Australia. It's got 55 receival sites across SA and Western Vic. It's got operations at six of that state's ports right along the coastline from the Eyre Peninsula down to Outer and Inner Harbour in Port Adelaide. And Bungie's got a export terminal at the port of Bunbury in WA and two grain receival sites. So that's their physical presence, but they also buy grain from farmers all over the country. So they're national grain traders, but in terms of the physical export of grains, that just happens in WA and SA. And the boards of both companies agreed unanimously to merge and create this $34 billion entity, which will rival uh, the likes of Archer Daniels Midland, Cargill and Louis Dreyfus, uh, commonly known as the ABCDs of Mm. global grain trade. Yeah, so the global grain trade Mm. is controlled by just a a handful (laughs) of companies already. Have you heard much in terms of, I guess, this sector getting even more concentrated? It already is so concentrated uh, around the globe and in Australia. So I think when the ACCC looks at this, they might not be too concerned about the physical assets that both of these companies own in Australia because the Nullarbor does do a pretty good job of keeping those markets quite separate. 
they do compete together as buyers of grain, as traders of Australian grain, but it has also been put to me over the past couple of days that there has been such an influx of new buyers into the Australian grain market. We've obviously had these record harvest after record harvest that even with the merger or dropout of one company, by Australian farmers would still have more options of places to sell their grain than they did five years ago with this merger. So it's quite unclear how the ACCC will view this. It's definitely not the same situation that antitrust regulators in places like Canada and Argentina would be looking at the deal where uh, both the physical assets and the commodities they compete in, uh, there's a lot more overlaps. So the ACCC will run the ruler over this though? Yeah, in a similar way that it did when the big agri-tech businesses were merging, uh, Bayer and Monsanto and Syngenta and ChemChina, that all was happening around 2016. And then I guess most recently, Nutrien and Landmark, it does its regulatory role um, requires it to look at these details where they do have a physical presence. And the ACCC also has... I guess, a regulatory function at the ports as well. So that's another area where it might be interested in how the operations of these two businesses might overlap. What does this mean for bread lovers such as myself? It's often said that literally everything in your pantry, on the dinner table, in you know any type of food, from coffee to sugar, cotton, grain, at some point in its journey from the farm gate to the plate, it's passed through the hands of one of these big four companies. That's how intense their control over the global food supply chain is. They all have their roots back in the day at one part of the supply chain, but the situation we see today is that each of those four companies has grown to a size that they all operate these really long supply chains all the way through the food system. So it's hard to say they're all privately held companies. So there's not a lot of public data about just how much money they make off the trading and things like that, because they don't have to disclose those figures. But there is a almost certain bet that you can place that anything you're eating has passed through the supply chain of one of those big four companies. So That's what we're dealing with here. Reporter Clint Jasper speaking with Matt Bran about that $34 billion merger between Bungie and Viterra. A record number of Pacific Islander workers are in Australia helping supply your next meal. Federal figures show an increase in workers on the Palm Scheme of more than 60% in the past year. Emil Pavlich reports. The income that Daniel Yakupas earns while working on the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility Scheme, known as PALM, is crucial in supporting his family after a cyclone ripped through Vanuatu earlier in the year. The fruit picker is based in northwest Victoria. He's one of almost 40,000 people employed on the scheme. He says his family is still recovering from the impacts of the natural disaster. They were slowly recovered, but the most income that they did to get their food or to build the houses they get from me. When Labor was elected last May, there were about 24,000 Pacific workers in the country and their 12-month target of 35,000 workers was reached within seven months and is now up 62% from when they took office. Mr Yakupas says for the most part, Palm has offered him a good way of supporting his family back in Vanuatu. Palm helped 
local people, like local islanders people, to come and work here. For me, I was really happy because Pam is really helping me to come here. And even though the work is not really good, but I get a little bit of money from uh, inside the program. Rather than I stay back in my country, there is no job. Last week, the federal government released details of reforms to the scheme. The modifications are part of the government's plan to significantly expand the number of workers coming from Pacific countries and will merge the former Pacific Labor Scheme and Seasonal Worker Program. One of the major changes is ensuring workers are paid a minimum of 30 hours per week. Previously, employers were able to average out the 30-hour-a-week minimum payment over a long period, normally nine months. Now the federal government guidelines mean from July next year, employers will have to pay workers for 30 hours of work a week. Mr Yakupas says this level of consistency would be really beneficial. He says the combination of accommodation deductions and lower hours can really hit the workers' hip pockets on quiet weeks. If all the money comes and goes through the deduction, and then it will affect me for sending money to my family. I will not have enough money to send over to my family or to send it back to my country for help the family to build my house or buy a food for the family to eat and survive. Uniting Church Senior Social Justice Advocate Dr Mark Zernzak says the Palm changes are aimed at reducing worker exploitation because they are often vulnerable, away from their culture and families and often low socioeconomic and so reliant on their job. These workers are not eligible for Australian welfare support or payments and are not allowed to find other work under their visa conditions. Dr Zernsack knew a group of palm workers who had been without work and pay for seven weeks and had to rely on food charity. Those situations leave workers in really desperate situations and their families back in the Pacific who are depending on them to be able to send money home to support families who are often in very difficult circumstances back in the Pacific. So some of these changes will force employers to change their practices. For a good employer that's already on the program, we think these changes won't necessarily mean a lot. Dr Zernsack says this reform also brings Australia in line with New Zealand and the United Kingdom farm worker schemes. New South Wales Pacific welfare worker Valencia Paquete has seen many contracts stipulating a minimum of 30 hours averaged over a nine-month period. She's told the ABC's Pacific Beat that this isn't always achieved. I understand in the horticulture industry, sometimes, you know, seasons don't account for the 30 hours. I have spoken to many workers who are crying out for help. She says mistreatment can deeply affect workers. When they rely on on money to be able to not only sustain their living here, but supporting their family back home, and they don't get that, it has a significant impact in their, their livelihood, their family's livelihood. Meanwhile, those in the horticulture industry are more concerned with how the changes will be implemented given the nature of seasonal work. Citrus is currently being picked and packed in northwest Victoria. Neutrano's Tanya Chapman says the changes to the scheme will put massive pressure on operations like theirs, which have no control over rain delays. If employers are obligated to pay workers for 30 hours, irrespective of whether they work or not, maybe due to inclement weather, then it is going to be really hard for growers. We would average four rain days every week. Ms Chapman said if growers left the scheme, it would have a big impact. These communities, these islands, these countries... They rely so heavily on us and they are so thankful to get the work that if they lose out as well, it's a double whammy for both growers and those countries that are involved with us. Meanwhile, Dr Zernsack welcomes new guidelines which require a greater cultural understanding between employers and workers. There are changes such as 
employers now need to be culturally competent. So they need to have some knowledge of Pacific Island cultures that they're going to take workers from and treat the workers in a respectful way, and that's going to increase worker productivity. So there's a net benefit for them there. Ni Vanuatu picker Mr Yakupas agrees. One of the most important things about the islanders, they have more respect with each other. When we say something bad to someone, we have to apologise to him before we continue the day or we, we continue the war. He says while there are some challenges working in the Palm Program, he's determined to support the recovery efforts back home. The reason he came to Australia is simple. Do a little bit of work, get some money, send it back to my country, helping my family. Reporter Emil Pavlich speaking to palm worker Daniel Jakopas. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Michelle Stanley with you. Great to have you along. Now, the price of almost everything is going up these days, isn't it? So you might be surprised to hear that at the source, the price of lamb has dropped almost $2 per kilo. So why isn't it cheaper in the supermarket or butcher? New South Wales farmer Colin Harper was fed up being a price taker, not a price maker when it came to selling his lambs. So to solve the problem, he decided to step away from the sale yards to process and market his own lamb direct to the consumer. The more people you take out of the loop, the, you know, the more profit there is for the one that's in there and... Uh and thus, I've been—I haven't had a price rise since I started, you know, two and a half years ago. It's really reassuring that you know you can set your own price rather than be dictated by meat buyers that sell your pen of lamb in like ten seconds. It's gone. You know, you've put twelve months' work into those lambs, and they're gone in ten seconds. And uh, no, it's really great. And and to know where your food's going, and for other people to know where their food's coming from, um, and plus the cleanness of the food, you know, the nu- nutrient dense and things like that. And, and speaking to an agent, he wasn't sure why prices are so high in the supermarkets and the butchers, but not that high in the sale yards. And uh, we often hear that the butchers and the like say, oh, well, you know, we've got the cost of rent and employees and keeping the cool rooms going, electricity, all of those things. So do you think that the prices that are in the, in the supermarkets at the moment do reflect adequately those costs? No, I don't think so. I think they can... Any chance they get to bump the price up, they do. And then when the price of lamb drops, they just find something, some reason to stay where they are. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just... Farmers are price takers, not price makers. When we, we should be makers. We're the first link in the chain. We're the first step. You know, we should set the price and then, then they work out from there. But uh, it hasn't worked like... It's never worked like that. And uh, so by bringing your own meat to the market yourself, to these markets, and then... Uh, and we've actually stepped out now and bought the local butcher shop and you know, carrying that on, and it's um, exciting. You will then cop the cost of rent and those power bills and things. Do you have concerns about that? And you might have to bump up your meat prices? No, I don't think so. Not at all, really. Like, yeah, that, that's, just, that's just hype and easy to say and um, makes a good story. And with the cost of living, everything seems to be getting more expensive for everyone. So are you finding that people are still coming to the farmers' markets to buy their meat and whatever else they need to get here? Are you still finding there's a good customer base? Yeah, we're going pretty well. Um, You get the clientele that are conscientious shoppers. You know, they want quality. They don't want preservatives and they don't want added fillers and things like that. And um, they appreciate the hard work the farmers do and the producers do. And uh, and, and we're good value, really, compared to the store-bought 
with the sale yards being so erratic and then the flow through of that to the supermarkets and the butchers, I guess uh, you mentioned over the last two years you've been able to maintain your pricing. So how have you managed to weather the storm of all those erratic highs and lows of things? Well, we probably started when land was at a, was at a high. So, um, you know, we, we priced it competitively then and just have stayed there. And it did go up after that. I, I do. I base my price on the sale yard price, not not what the stores are selling it for. And then I know and I know my cost of production, and I know what I'm selling it for. And you know, I'm not not looking to break records every week. It's just a constant flow that I don't have the lows that come with it. It was Riverina land producer Colin Harper speaking to Cara Jeffrey. But some butchers have found the pressures of inflation and erratic livestock markets are difficult to manage. Musselbrook butchery owner Alicia Close says they can't pass on lower prices that they're not seeing themselves. The cost of living is up for everything, all, you know, all our electricity prices and rent still goes up every week. So, yeah, we've still got to make the money to be able to pay our bills. So in terms of the shop front, have you had to raise prices much? Um, we have a little bit with when everything was going up. Um, once it starts coming back down, we'll be able to move on those prices again. Do you ever have to wear any of those costs or can you usually pass it down? Um, when everything was going up quite crazy, um, we were a lot of those costs. Um, yeah, so we didn't pass too much on. We held as long as we could before we had to move on those prices. Um, so the customer could still get a decent price for their meat. I know everything's gone up, so I know everyone's struggling. So we did try and hold as long as we could. Um, some things we've obviously had to move on, but other things we've held. So Recently at the sale yards, both beef and lamb have seen a huge dip. Sheep and cattle are selling for half the price. Will you see any of, will you see be paying half the price? Absolutely not. <laughs> I wish. Um, no, with the prices of, I mean, the lambs, the lambs are still up there uh, a little bit. It's the the older lambs that have come back in price, not the young lambs. So they're still up there. It's the old lamb like mutton and hogget. That's the price that's come back because there's a lot. There's this, you know, people have got a lot of that around at the moment. It's just not selling. And we don't provide that in our shop because it's just not quality. People wouldn't come back if we sold that in our shop. So um, beef, on the other hand, it, it has come back a little bit. Um, and we adjust our prices as we need to when they, when they start coming back. But we haven't seen the full drop as of yet. Musselbrook butchery owner Alicia Close speaking with Laura Williams. A deadly plant disease outbreak and a slump in demand decimated the sunflower industry in Australia's sunflower capital. But could an ambitious plan to make vegetable oil for biofuel production see this town bloom? Once again, Megan Hughes has the story. For decades, emerald in central Queensland was surrounded by fields of bright yellow and the town became synonymous with the colourful blooms. They were grown primarily to make sunflower oil. Tim Gersbach's family grew them for generations. My grandfather especially grew and father grew a lot of sunflower. It was delivered to the Grain Corp, you know, to the depots in town, Grain Corp or Cargill. It was just a bulk crop. Then Cargill's ceased crushing in Australia so then it became a, a birdseed market which was substantially downsized and then also tobacco streak virus came in. The virus was devastating and completely wiped out crops. This country can grow good sunflower it's just yeah when this tobacco streak virus gets into it, it it just totally eliminates that plant like the stalk just snaps off and 
the plant's completely gone, so it's, it's just such a big impact. Mr Gersbach's family now grow wheat, chickpeas and sorghum. But there's hope the local industry could get back to its former glory. An oilseed crushing plant is being proposed by a company called Enagreen Nutrition at an industrial estate near Emerald. According to the application submitted to the Central Highlands Regional Council, it would process sunflower seeds, safflower and cotton seed into oil, specifically for consumption and biofuel production. The remaining material would be turned into meal for animal feed. For years, sunflowers were grown in Australia for cooking oil production, but President of Australia's Sunflower Association, Chris Hare, says countries like Ukraine outcompeted the domestic industry. The demand is there for the oil, but there either wasn't enough supply to justify crushing, or after that, people weren't interested in crushing, and so people weren't prepared to grow it. We ended up with a bit of a stalemate where... Now you have a couple of sort of niche markets. So you've got the birdseed industry, which has been around for decades, and that's a pretty stable sort of volume market. Price fluctuates a little bit. And other than that, I guess stock feeds would be the next main user of sunflowers. As for disease pressures, research by Queensland's Agriculture Department has found pathinium weed, which is common in central Queensland, is a host for the virus and thrips move the infected pollen to sunflower crops. But new disease resistant sunflower varieties are now available to growers. Mr Hare hopes sunflowers become viable once again. And it's one where they can get a contract at planting to grow so they have a little bit of assurance of what they're going to get at the end of the season. And, you know, it also just increases the market or the volume that can be, you know, used at the end of the season as well. So I see it as a bonus. The prices will probably not be at the levels that they were when it was just a small bird seed market. But, you know, from a broader industry perspective, uh, hopefully the price can be competitive with other crops. The application for the crushing plant is still with council planners and hasn't been sent to the council board for decision-making yet. And a green nutrition declined to comment. That report by Megan Hughes. You're listening to Countrywide. Michelle Stanley with you. Now, pastoralists in the northwest of Western Australia expect the damage bill from tropical cyclone Ilsa will be in the tens of millions of dollars across the region. The cyclone crossed the WA coast at Pardu Station in April. Two months on, I took a drive to check in and see how the station is faring. Tropical cyclone Ilsa broke Australian wind speed records when it thrashed the Pilbara coast in April. It was one of the most severe systems to ever hit the mainland and Pardu Station copped the full brunt. So if you look into the timber there take notice you see how it's all been just snapped and twisted. Most of looking at your sides of them. Yeah. You'd think someone's been through with a dozer or something and just absolutely taken no prisoners, you know. Driving down the highway, the trees give away the strength and the direction of the wind as it passed over. They're bent over sideways, forced over by the sheer power of the wind. Fences are almost on their sides, if they're even in place at all. And it's really green, which isn't too common for a Pilbara winter. And then you see a random water tank out on its side, a long way from where it should be. All these plastic feed drops, they're from here to Timbuktu, like they're kilometres of oh. <laughs> spread. 
for kilometres. It's about an hour and a half's drive northeast of Port Hedland on the East Pilbara Coast. Pardo Station is home to about 6,000 head of mainly Wagyu cattle which are fed on 20 centre pivots. Well, usually. Out of the 20 we've res resurrected six, including that one. Scott Fraser came to the Pilbara from Queensland just a couple of months ago to manage the station. Three weeks later, he was flat out tying down centre pivots and preparing for what would be his first cyclone. The devastation of the timber across the roads, the fences that were flat, um, and of course the, the old station was just an absolute nightmare. Like they got a lot of gum trees growing there and had just taken the tops out of them and threw them all over the buildings. So it was an absolute mess. And sheds there just is if you put your hand on a shed and you were strong enough to crush it and then push it on the ground, just smashed. And when we got a helicopter in, it was just mind-boggling. You know, you couldn't, you're kind of speechless, you know. To the right of us, we've got some Wagyu that are merry and happy and, and creating all sorts of ruckus, um, but they, they've done well. You hadn't had losses, which is phenomenal. To the left, we've got this centre pivot, which um, not a cheap bit of gear, and you lost quite a few of them. What ended up being the wash-up with the centre pivots from not just the ones that fell over, but also some of the, the motors, essentially, that have died? So, yeah, so we're lucky here. We've got enough water pressure that we don't have to actually ah. pump the water up, but we do have to have small generators to actually drive the electricity, which drives the pivot. But you're out of 20 pivots, 19 were destroyed. We managed to resurrect six. But yeah, they're like $280,000 to replace those things. And um, that doesn't count, you know, the lost time and the pastures going backwards and whatever. But yeah, the cattle have, have done well. We're kind of quite proud of ourselves with the cattle because beside the pivots is uh, low scrub country. But it, like I said, four days to tie down 20 pivots and shift, um, you know, a few thousand litre cattle off pivots and put them into small paddocks under under scrubby protection areas. And look, we, um, you know, I, until we muster really, but I, I mean, we've flown and flown fence lines, we've flown waters and we've mustered cattle back in on the pivots out of those areas and not one dead animal, you know. But yeah, the struggle's on now, of course, with the pivots that are down because we've been, when you've got pivots, you're, you're not overstocked, but when they stop, you certainly overstock very quickly. Uh, so yeah, we've got these things mowed down, these pivots, and um, and so we've had a real juggle act trying to get cattle back off the place here to lighten the load. Yeah. What what are your actions at the moment? We're about two months on from the cyclone. What are you up to? So we've nearly got our stocking numbers down on the pivots uh, to where I'm comfortable because we've only got six going, and because uh, well, the last one of those only got g g going four days ago, and the grass doesn't grow under the pivots this time of the year. You know it. Um, it only rates at about a third of what you can get in the summer. So it's really slow to recover. So what are we up to now? So yeah, we've sort of got that under control. We've got a fencer on board now who, he'll be here for many, many, many months. Uh, to get a start, we've got a, a greater operator coming in to get in front of him. A lot of our waters got fixed up earlier on, but yeah, now we're sort of lining up to needing to, to master and get the bulls out. And of course, our fences are very ordinary, so um, yeah, we're sort of stuck in a rock and hard place at the moment trying to get fences up, and we've got long walks to get cattle anywhere, and they've got calves on them, so I'm not looking forward to that year. When you look at not just the 
whether it's the tourist park, whether it's the fencing, the pivots, um, the lost productivity, all of that. I know it's hard to quantify. Um, you you were expecting in the millions of dollars. Would you put it in the tens of millions of dollars? Like, do, can you quantify the the loss and and the impact on the business? When I when I when we when I first got interviewed and the thing and I said I p- said roughly about added up a few figures and it kind of pretty came came pretty close to like in my mind just quickly without doing any sums on the ground fifteen million bucks. Now a lot of that's going to get covered by insurance and whatever. But a lot of that has the uh, you know, unowned value that we've got to put up with going forward. And we have done some preliminary sums, and it's not far off the mark, you know, by the time you add all that stuff up, you know. So, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a lot of money, you know. It's a lot of money. And it just goes to show you how these enterprises, what they're worth, you know. Um, people pay big bucks for land these days. I will say, though, I was chatting with one of the members of staff from Pardo Beef Corporation and they said to me that the work that, Scott, you did, um, your, your family, your, the, the crew um, has just been invaluable and, and since, uh, since coming back to the station to try and clean up, they, they were just so happy to have you on deck. So three weeks in and, and you've made a bit of a name for yourself in the Pilbara by the sounds. Yeah, well, I suppose you certainly put in the spotlight, aren't you, when that thing goes through. So, yeah, you're on show. Well, I say you're on show, you know. I mean, it's just hard work. And, um, yeah, I sort of wonder how we got through it ourselves, to, to be honest, you know. But, yeah, you, it's all work. And, uh, yeah, if you sit down and sulk about it, <laughs> you know, no one's coming to help you, you know. We know that. Scott Fraser speaking with me from Pardue Station and you can read more about that story on the ABC News website. Just search ABC Pardue Cyclone. That is it for Countrywide this week. I'm Michelle Stanley. It's been great to have your company. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.